So you might be wondering what all this contraption is. So this, instead of um, a video for the time reflection today, I wanted to actually do a illustration. Um, and the illustration, let me move this out of the way so you can see better. This illustration is very simple, um, but I hope it makes an impact. I'm going to pretend that this represents our day, 24 hours, one day in, uh, in our week. And let's pretend that, yeah, this represents that time period. And let's pretend that these potatoes that I have over here <laughs> represent the big items in our lives that take up a big chunk of our time. So for example, we all have school or work, right? And I think that's a big potato, right? Um, maybe two potatoes for work. And then on top of that, you have to sleep, right? So we'll put a potato for sleep. And you also have to eat. Um, and you also have to do, you know, miscellaneous things, whether it's laundry or catching up with friends or hobbies. So let's just put a potato for that. And as you can see, your day is full, right? Um, and most of us live our days where it's packed full, and we say we don't have any more time for God to read my Bible, to pray, to reach out and help someone else, because our day is full. There's no more space, right? And it's true that um, our day is full. If you think about 24 hours, you know, once you've allocated the 8 to 10 plus hours for work, um, and then 6 to 8 hours for sleep, um, food, hobbies, etc., like, it's true. We think there is no more time. But... I want to propose to you that there is such a thing as grains of time. Um, whether it's, I brought rice cream because that's all I had in the house. But if you could use it as sand too. But the idea is that um, while there's big chunks of time that is, you know, taking up our day, there's lots of little moments also throughout our day. Whether that's, you know, waiting for a website to load if you have very slow internet like we do at our house. Or maybe it's when you're waiting in line at Kohl's, getting your groceries. Or maybe it's um, while you're in the bathroom, doing important business. Or maybe it's um, while you're eating, right? And you're limited on what you can do uh, while you're using both your hands. But... Why in those little moments of time, those little grains of time, it's actually amazing how much time we actually do have for a quick look at one verse. And especially since we all have our smartphones with us all the time, um, how quickly and how easily we can get to Bible Gateway and look at just the verse of the day that they have on the homepage even. Or you could download an app that will give you a verse of the day. Um, and it's amazing how in just one minute you could even read a short devotional that is, um, again, on the websites, very easily found, uh, whether it's My Elmas for His Highest, or um, there's tons of apps that will have little commentaries that are just, you know, one or two paragraphs long. It takes you one minute to two minute max to read. Or maybe in that one 30-second um, time that you have while you're filling up your, you know, car with petrol, you could send up a quick prayer for someone that um, you haven't had a chance to pray for during the day. Um, and it's amazing how the, all those little grains of time, that much, you know, um, can actually make your life meaningful and full after all. And, and it's amazing how we can make time for God, 
Um, and it doesn't have to be three hour time slots at a time. It could be filling around those um, waiting periods or in the in between or while you're eating, you know, you just prop open um, your Bible or um, perhaps even call somebody and talk to them while you're eating and just see how they're doing. Um, and I'm sure there's lots of other ideas that you can come up with, but I just want to challenge us this week to take advantage of the grains of time because it's amazing how much we actually do have that and how those moments can actually be used to connect to God and to each other. Um, and it doesn't have to be a huge sacrifice at all, as you can see. We still have got you know all our potatoes in there, but there is room for more. And I think the Holy Spirit will give us wisdom and will give us efficiency so that we can uh, use those grains of time for God. Let's have a word of prayer. Father God, I ask that in this grain of time, in this moment, that your Holy Spirit would come and inspire us with a picture of you that would give us the inspiration that we need to live each moment for you and to be able to use our time wisely and to um, make the most of what you have given to us. And Father, I pray that even though we're a small number today, that you would bless us and our community. I ask that you be with all those who are out of town and out of the country even. Um, There's quite a number of them. And I ask that uh, for those who are sick during this cold season, that you would bring them um, speedy recovery. And Father, if there's anything that is hindering us from connecting with you at this time, please take those obstacles away. And may we be face-to-face with you this afternoon. It's my prayer in your name. Amen. It's good to see everybody. Uh, this more this afternoon's oh man it's a long day. <laughs> Michael did it and I'm number two. All right, so um, yeah, this afternoon the uh, the talk for today the title of the talk is I was blind but now I see, sort of, and it's uh, it's found in the, this this title is uh, based off a story of a blind man who was who was healed miraculously by Jesus. And if you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to join me in uh, Mark chapter 8. And we're going to read through the story together, uh, verses 22 to 26. And I found this story to have a few points that uh, were a bit unique um, to some of the miracles that Jesus performed. And so I thought it'd be interesting to read through it together, study it together, and even discuss it together uh, afterwards. So, Mark chapter 8, and we're going to read verses 22 to 26. And today we're basically going to be flipping throughout the book of Mark. And so if you've got your speedy finger ready, we'll be flicking through a lot of uh, text together. So, here's a story. It says, Then he, being Jesus, came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his house saying, Neither go into the town nor tell anyone in town. Now there are three things in the story that really stick out to me. One is that uh, it takes Jesus more than once to properly heal this this man. And usually when Jesus performs a miracle, he just says the word and then it happens and then the person is healed. Yet in this case, it takes two stages or two rounds. And in my mind, I kind of ask myself the question, well, Jesus can do anything. How come the first time wasn't good enough? And so that's kind of something that's unique in the story. The second thing that sticks out in my mind is this is... Uh, the first time in scripture or in the New Testament where Jesus 
asks an assessing question kind of like a doctor would assess his patient and he asks him, can you see clearly? And for me, whenever Jesus does something, it's usually good. If you think about creation, uh, in the first day God creates light and he looks at it and he says, it's good. Well, in this case, Jesus doesn't just say, it's good. He asks him, how are you feeling? <laughs> and for me, it's kind of like, don't you already know? <laughs> and so that's kind of a unique situation. Then thirdly, after Jesus performs this incredible miracle, he tells the man, don't go back into the village and don't tell anybody. And so in my mind, I kind of think, wait, you're trying to build the kingdom of heaven. You want to share with people uh, these great things that you're doing. Why would you tell someone to shh, not to say anything? And so kind of unique situations. Now, this story, in order for it to make sense, it's important to see the context in which this story takes place. And the mystery of the miracle of the blind man is sandwiched between the unbelief of the disciples and the different stages that they go through in their own spiritual journey. And so I wanted to go through Mark chapter 8 with you. Well, actually, almost the whole book of Mark with you. But uh, I promise it'll only be about 30 minutes. Um, so let's look at what happens to the disciples before uh, this blind man is healed uh, to see their spiritual condition. Now, there are uh, there's a main lesson that Jesus is trying to teach to his disciples while he is spending time with them. Number one, he's trying to teach them about who he is. He's trying to convince them, I am the son of God and I'm somebody who can completely change your life. So on one hand, he's trying to convince him of who he is. Secondarily, Jesus is trying to convince them about the nature and the character of himself in terms of how he operates. And so he's trying to teach them principles about the kingdom of heaven. So when you're reading through the Bible, there are moments where it says Jesus is giving these teachings and he says the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he tells this story. So, yeah, he's trying to do those two things. Now, Jesus basically uses several different uh, lesson books or classrooms. And in the book of Mark, he seems to really like the sea. And so there are three different stories where Jesus is trying to, he's on a boat, there's storms, and then he's trying to teach the disciples a lesson. And I kind of want to go over each of those instances with you uh, this morning. So here's the first instance. We go to Mark chapter 4. And if you have your Bibles, you can kind of read through um, the story. But basically, Jesus is sleeping on the boat, and he's crossing the sea, and this storm comes. And the disciples get really afraid, and they try to shake Jesus, and they say, uh, Master, don't you care that we're going to die? And Jesus wakes up, and he calms the storm. And this is what takes place at the end of the story in Mark chapter 4, verse 41. It says, And they feared exceedingly, and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? And so Jesus is kind of, he's, he wakes up and he's kind of startled that they're so afraid because he's like, hey, I'm in the boat with you. You have nothing to worry about. And he calms the sea and he's trying to, he uses the storm as a lesson book to teach his disciples, you have nothing to fear. Like, uh, you have somebody very special right next to you. And they don't understand this. And right after the miracle takes place, they're like, who is this guy? It's kind of like, don't you take that one step further? You can answer your own question. Now, here's a second instance of the sea and the storm. Mark chapter 6, 
Jesus has just healed the 5,000. Uh, excuse me, not healed the 5,000. He's just fed the 5,000. I'm mixing up my stories now. So Jesus breaks bread and fish, and he basically feeds. And the story says there are 5,000 men. So we have no idea how many women and children there are. And there's this incredible instance of uh, bread and fish being broken and passed throughout the crowds, and they are fed. And um, right afterwards, uh, Jesus sends the disciples over the sea again. And lo and behold, there's a storm on the sea, and Jesus goes walking on the sea, and what happens is they're quite terrified um, because they think Jesus is a spirit, but then they figure out that it's really him. And this is what takes place um, after um, this instance of Jesus walking on the sea and coming and, uh, coming back into the boat with them. It says, Then he went up into the boat with them. They were amazed, and they had not understood uh, about the loaves because their heart was hardened. So at the end of this story, there's this miracle of Jesus walking on the sea with Peter. He comes back into the boat, and at the end of this story, it says the disciples don't understand the significance of the feeding of the 5,000. And in my mind, I kind of ask the question, why is there a connection between the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water? I would think that they're kind of separate. But uh, Mark, the author of the story, makes it a point to say there is a common denominator between the story of the bread and the story of the sea. And so anyway, uh, Jesus is trying to basically explain to them his divinity because he's performing all these incredible miracles, but they don't understand. And it says because of the hardness of their heart. Let's go to this third instance. We're in Mark chapter 8. And as a precursor, to uh, the story of when they're actually on the sea. Um, there is this story of Jesus feeding the 4,000. And so uh, regularly in Mark, he kind of couples this feeding of people with bread and then the sea, and then they're supposed to learn this lesson. He seems to like the, uh, he seems to remember the stories this way. And so um, there, there's a lesson for the reader here as well. So Jesus has fed the 4,000. And if you look at verse 11, Right after Jesus feeds the 4,000. And basically, uh, there are people who are with him in the wilderness for three days. They have no food. They have nothing to eat. Jesus has compassion. And he's thinking, what are these people going to eat? And so, once again, he gathers uh, food together. He asks the disciples, can you gather food together? And then he multiplies the food and feeds lots and lots of people. So if you look at verse 11, and notice what happens right after Jesus has performed these miracles. It says, Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Now we go into the portion where they go onto the sea. The disciples are on a boat. They have forgotten bread. So Jesus has fed 4,000 people, and they have seven basket loads of bread, and they forget to grab bread on their journey. Notice what the text says in verse 14. It says, Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. So notice in verse 14, how many loaves of bread does it say that the disciples have? One loaf of bread. Okay? Now verse 15, Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And so this is the leaven where the 
Pharisees are kind of asking him for a sign. They 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 want their curiosity. Um, uh, basically, they want Jesus to prove himself. And Jesus says, "There's a certain teaching and a principle of living there that I want you to be wary of." And we'll we'll talk about that in just a second. And notice how they respond, verse sixteen. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, "Is it because we have no bread?" Now I have a question for you. In verse fourteen, how many loaves of bread do they have? One. And then verse 16, how many loaves of bread do they have? None. And so the question is, why there, why is there a discrepancy in the text there? And so Mark is kind of being cheeky because the one loaf of bread in the boat is actually the baker. Like it's Jesus himself. And so he's kind of saying the source of bread is on the boat. And then they start arguing, wait, is he mad at us because we forgot bread? And they, they completely don't get it at all. They think Jesus is talking about bread. But he's actually referring to what the Pharisees um, are arguing over, or what the Pharisees are asking Jesus to do. Okay, so I want to go into that a little bit. The disciples think the issue is bread. And through Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 6, Mark chapter 4, Jesus is trying to teach them about who he is through the water and through bread. And they don't get it. He's performing all these miracles and they're just missing everything. And each time the text says it's because of the hardness of their heart. And uh, even if you look at Mark chapter 8 at the end of his dialogue with them, uh, it says in verse 21, Jesus is kind of exasperated and he's kind of like, how is it that you don't understand what I'm trying to communicate to you? And in verse 17, uh, Jesus is aware of their ignorance and he says, why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And that reference to eyes or vision is very clear because they're about to come in contact with a blind man. And so Jesus makes this reference so that they'll go back and connect all the dots later on. So Jesus is saying there is something that the Pharisees have that I am deeply concerned about. There's a teaching that the Pharisees are, maybe not a teaching, but there is underlying principle by which the Pharisees live their lives that Jesus is deeply concerned about. And here's what they're talking about. Here's what Jesus is talking about. Now, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say to him, give us a sign. Now, when you just read it at, at a surface level, um, it doesn't seem like a big deal because Jesus has been giving signs his whole ministry, his whole life. And people will say things like, oh, can you perform this miracle? And Jesus does it. And so when the Pharisees come to him and they say, give us a sign, it kind of makes Jesus frustrated. And the question is, well, why is he why is he so upset? And so the nature of the sign, of any sign, is that it comes from a divine source, right? Because signs are something that is not normal. It's out of the ordinary. And so it's kind of redundant to say, give us a sign from heaven. Now, when the disciples, or excuse me, when the Pharisees use that phrase, there's a deeper underlying meaning to that phrase. They're not just asking for any sign. They're asking for the, like the definite article, the sign. And for the Jews, there are uh, there were promises and signs and prophecies that God gave to Israel. And basically, um, if you read through the book of Isaiah or read through the Old Testament, uh, the promises of the signs that God gives to his people are, I will give you redemption from those that um, are oppressing you. So all the, all the empires, all the kingdoms that are more powerful than you are, um, I'm going to give you freedom from them. 
I'm going to give you prosperity. Uh, you will live in a land of milk and honey and all the nations of the world will surround you. And basically, it, there's like this promise of grandeur. And that's the sign that God gives to Israel. And so when these Pharisees come to Jesus, they're saying, give us that sign. It's like an apocalyptic end time sign. And Jesus looks at them and he's, he can read between the motive, he can read between the lines because he's performed all these miracles. Why would they not be convinced that Jesus is somebody special? And so when they come and they ask for a sign, he gets upset at them and he basically uses this phrase, um, uh, verse 12, why does this generation seek a sign? Uh, uh, excuse me. Yeah, he says, why does this generation seek a sign? That's actually an incorrect translation. The correct translation is, if this generation is given a sign, and then it's kind of like dot, 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 and he doesn't finish the rest of the phrase. And basically, he uses this Hebrew idiom, and the second half of that idiom goes, then may God strike me down. And so there's like this sense of uh, frustration in Jesus' voice. And he's kind of saying, if this generation is given a sign, God kill me. And he's basically telling them emphatically, no, I will not give you a sign. And so Jesus is quite frustrated because there's this selfish ambition in this request. And it's quite contrary to the normal character of Jesus because usually he's very compassionate, very merciful, and even in the stubbornness of people, he works with them and he kind of, he'll give them a sign if they want a sign. Like Peter's walking on water, or the story of Peter walking on water, he says, Jesus, if it's really you, let me walk on water. And Jesus goes, okay, you can walk on water. And that's the command for Peter to walk on water. It doesn't originate with Jesus. It originates with Peter. And Peter's being completely selfish because there are 11 other guys in the boat and he doesn't even mention them at all. He's like, Jesus, me, let me walk on water. And it's like, it's almost like Jesus humors him. And he's like, okay, come out to me. Like, that's the Jesus that I know. Yet here in this story, the Pharisees ask for a sign. And he basically says, if you get a sign, God is going to kill me. Like, completely different. Now, for me, one reason why Jesus does this is that there's a stark contrast. In Mark chapter 3, it's the first time in the book of Mark where it says that the Pharisees plot to kill Jesus. Like they're so jealous, they're so frustrated at this teacher, this master, and they decide with them, amongst themselves, you know what, let's just kill him. And as soon as they come to that decision, Jesus' interaction with them changes. He begins to say, I will not give you a sign because he knows their heart is so hardened already. And then he starts rebuking them and Post-Mark chapter 3 is where Jesus starts calling them uh, vipers and um, he almost starts calling them names and things like that. And so there's this difference between how Jesus interacts with uh, yeah, with the Pharisees post-Mark chapter 3. So Jesus is trying to teach the, the disciples this important lesson. The sign-seeking that the Pharisees are looking for, they almost separate belief and trust. And belief is a good thing, right? Because they're saying, Jesus, if you give us a sign, then we will believe. But in reality, they're just saying, Jesus, like, overthrow the Romans because we know you can. And that's not something that's beneficial for humanity. It's something that's beneficial for them. And so here, Jesus calls them out and he says, the Pharisees are separating belief and trust. And here's what I mean. What Jesus wants is selfless trust and obedience that promotes life. 
what the Jews want or what the Pharisees wanted, they wanted self-power that would bring about death. death. So Jesus is kind of like rebuking this trustless, uh, excuse me, this trustless belief. And so basically, let me try and gather my thoughts here. Now, let me just read what I have written down on paper. That'll help. Okay, so all trust requires some evidence, true? And so when the Pharisees are saying, hey, give us a sign, it isn't necessarily a bad thing. But selfish belief requires an overabundance of evidence that does not lead or build to more trust. In fact, it contradicts the nature of trust. It tries to eliminate ambiguity and paradox, and the end result is the opposite of trust. Let me give, let me try and give a weird example. My wife and I have entered into a trusting relationship. It's a trusting covenant, right? Uh, at the, at the wedding altar, I committed my life to my wife. Uh, I committed my life of uh, faithfulness and, um, it's a covenant that cannot be broken. Now, let's say in one day I think, you know, I just want to make sure that my wife is being faithful to me. Like, I, I want, I want some evidence that can strengthen my belief. And so let's say I hire a private investigator, right? And that private investigator goes around, checks all of her email, checks her phone, takes pictures of her wherever she goes, and then at the end of a three-month period, he sets this huge file uh, in front of me, and he says, here is evidence of the last three months of your wife's movements. Here's every person she's ever talked to. Here's uh, all the text messages, and here's all her bank account details so you can see how she's spending her money. Now, I've got great amounts of evidence to show whether or not my wife is being faithful to me. But let's say my wife finds out that I've been doing this, right? In the end, that desire for evidence and belief does not strengthen our relationship. It breaks it down. And so, by nature, you cannot completely wipe out any doubt or any paradox. Um, excuse me. <laughs> the desire for... Um, the desire for 100% security does not bring about security. That's what I want to say. And Jesus highlights this amongst the Pharisees, and he says, they have ample evidence that I am divine and who I am, yet they do not believe. And so he says, nope, I'm not giving you any more signs. And he highlights that. And I find in my own life, it's such, uh, it's nice to have security. There are questions that I have about my life. God what direction do you want me to go in my life? Um, before it was, God, who do you want me to marry? Or, God, how should I invest my finances? And I'm seeking for security. I'm seeking for some evidence. Like, God, I want you to give me this 100% foolproof plan that no matter what, everything is going to be okay. And God kind of calls it out, and he's like, that's actually not what you need. That's not going to strengthen your relationship with me. It's actually going to weaken your relationship with me. And so that bit of uncertainty, that bit of ambiguity and paradox is needed to build a strong relationship. And it's just a mystery, and that's kind of how God operates. And so Jesus calls out the Pharisees, and he tells the disciples, do not follow that, because the end result is not what you're looking for. So Jesus highlights this problem and he basically, he saddened that they're blind and they don't get it. 
And the solution to this is if they would just simply clearly see who he is and uh, the nature of his character. And so we come now to the story of the blind man, and we've already gone through it. So I'm going to move forward. If you look at Mark chapter 8, verses 27, and what we're going to look at now is what happens after the healing of the blind man and how Jesus begins to restore the sight of the disciples. So in this transitional point in the book of Mark, uh, the healing of the blind man really uh, outlines the healing of the disciples. And uh, they were once blind, and after an initial healing, they begin to see, but then there's this multiple stage of healing that uh, needs to take place in order for them to clearly see, if you will. So if you go to Mark chapter 8, and um, just skimming through verses 27 to 30, Jesus is having a dialogue with his disciples, and he asks them this question, and he specifically asks Peter this question uh, in verse 29. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers and says to him, you are the Christ. And there's this initial healing that takes place. Whereas before in the storm and with the bread, they're kind of talking with each other, the disciples, and they're asking the question, who is this guy? And when Peter answers after the healing of the blind man, he says, Jesus, you are the Christ. And there's a specific title that's given to the Christ. You don't call anybody the Christ. You know how when somebody um, somebody kind of says, I'm the man. It's not just any title. You're basically saying, I'm better than everybody else. And so that title of the Christ, is, it's this special title that's only given to a special person who would bring about redemption to Israel. And so when Jesus asks him, who am I? It's kind of like when Jesus asks the blind man, hey, how did the miracle go? And the blind man kind of says, yeah, I kind of see men walking around like trees. And when Peter answers him, you are the Christ. It's proof that that first layer of blindness has gone away. And Peter now begins to see something special about Jesus. And there's this initial healing. Now notice what, ta- uh, notice what takes place after this. Um, remember with the healing of the blind man, he can't quite see, but he has an initial healing. If you just jump down a few more texts, right after Peter says, you're the Christ, Jesus gives him this great word of encouragement. And if you look at verse 31, right afterwards, Jesus begins to teach them about how he needs to suffer many things, be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed. And so he talks about this suffering and pain that he has to experience. And in the story, Peter begins to rebuke him. And he says, Jesus, don't let this be so. This is not going to happen to you. And right afterwards, Jesus turns around and he says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God but the things of men. And so on one hand, Peter has this first layer of blindness that has gone away from him, and he says, you're the Christ. He says the right thing. But as soon as Jesus starts talking to him about the difficulties and the self-denial and the cross-bearing that needs to take place as a follower of Christ, Peter's like, no, 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 I don't want any of that. And Jesus rebukes him. And what we gather from this story is that Peter has some growing to do. It takes him more than one experience with Jesus to gain the healing. And as you read through the book of Mark, and as you read through Peter's life even, he deals with all sorts of stuff, whether it's racism, whether it's unbelief, whether it's his own pride. And it is 
this growing process that takes place as he continues to walk with Jesus. So, yeah, there's this multiple stage of healing that needs to take place. And as I think about the story, I kind of ask myself the question, well, why didn't Jesus just heal him once? I mean, couldn't he do it? I mean, Jesus can heal blindness. He's done it before. It only took him one time. Why two times with this guy? And even with Peter, like, Jesus could change our characters, like, just a blink blink of an eye, like, snap of a finger, and we're perfect. Oh, why can't that happen? And why, why doesn't that happen? I don't know if you've ever uh, really sought after God and you kind of, you've been convicted of your own life and you've thought, man, there are areas of my life where I really want change. And I don't know if you've ever felt frustrated because that change didn't take place overnight. Or you're kind of like, you know, um, yeah, I just, I wish I were a better, more virtuous, righteous individual. Like, that would be great. And for me, there have been times where I've kind of wondered, why does it take so long? Why is it so painful? <laughs> like, why, why, did, why, why does God choose to use this method? And as I think through, uh, the, the answer isn't completely given in the text, but I kind of realize there are some things where you don't want rapid change. And in my mind, I think I want rapid change, but in reality, I know maybe maybe I'm not so ready for it. And a couple examples came to my mind um, when it comes to rapid change. Uh, for example, one is... Um, when when I was younger, uh, we used to have these measuring beakers. It's a glass measuring beaker, and usually it's used to uh, measure eggs or flour or whatever if, when you're baking. They say that uh, cooking is a science, baking is an art. Is that right? Or, or baking is a science, cooking is an art? Okay, I don't do it either, so <laughs> it's quite obvious. <laughs> so anyway, there's this glass beaker, and I had water, um, hot water in it, and um, basically it was... Uh, it was, I think it was in the microwave, and I pulled it out, and um, I took a bunch of cold water, and then I poured it into the cup, and then it shattered into 100 pieces. <laughs> and at the time, I had no idea what had happened. I was kind of like, that glass was a piece of junk. <laughs> That's what I thought, like, not good quality. Come on, America. <laughs> and what I, what I didn't know about was how heat changes material and basically um the the molecules slow down when they're hot and then when when they're cold they they speed up and so uh, it's the other way around uh they speed up when it's hot and then they slow down when it's cold and if you rapidly change something it's too much for the molecules to bear and basically that's that's when stuff begins to break and so they actually um they're just saying uh, for example a, a better application of that would be Came, not here in Melbourne, but if you ever move to Michigan, like it gets really cold outside and your windshield is frozen over. And basically they say, never take hot water and pour it over your windshield because you will not have a windshield <laughs> if you do that. And uh, so anyway, um, yeah, use cold water even if it's cold outside. And the principle is rapid change is not always healthy. And as a Christian, I know I want rapid change and it's kind of like, why, why isn't this taking place faster? And In this story of multiple stages of healing, God is trying to teach us, listen, there's some things where you trust what I'm doing and take your time. And even in the midst of your struggling, just know that I'm right next to you. And so there's this lesson of growth that Jesus is trying to teach the the disciples. When I think about this, um, oh, here's another example. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever had fitness goals. Uh, I have fitness goals. And it's kind of, my fitness goals are to... uh, 
you can see how serious my fitness goals are. My fitness goal is something like gain 10 to 15 kilos in the next two, three years. But I would love to gain 10 to 15 kilos in the next five minutes. <laughs> and, and I've seen pictures of people who use steroids in muscle growth supplement. And what happens is their muscles grow so fast that it begins to tear their muscles because their, their muscles aren't ready for that change. And so it does more hurt than good. Um, and so that's my new excuse for being skinny. Like I just want to make sure that, you know, there's a gradual change and yeah. Anyway, so rapid change isn't always healthy change. And so, uh, the challenge of that is that there are moments where Jesus gives Peter a compliment and at the next moment he rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. And there are times where you can do good and bad at the same time. And we don't like that because we call that hypocrisy. And we kind of think, listen, like, hurry up and get your life together type of thing. And I think that of myself and I think that of everybody that I come across. And at the same time, uh, the message of the gospel is Jesus is saying, listen, there's slow, gradual change that takes place as you spend time with me. And so, yeah, there's this lesson of change that Jesus is trying to teach um, his disciples and uh, that lesson that Jesus is trying to teach us. So it's good to know that God is patient. Now, there's this final lesson here. As uh, the disciples have to go through multiple stages of growth, that first stage is them clearly seeing who Jesus is. The second stage of growth has to do with the nature in which God operates. And as Jesus rebukes Peter, he says, Get behind me, Satan, uh, for you do not savor the things of God, but you savor the things of man. Notice in verse 34, and I'll just skim this, Jesus gives these principles of what it means to follow after God and the, the very nature and character in which God operates. So in verse 34, uh, he says to the disciples, whoever desire, desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And then he kind of repeats himself a couple times in different ways. Now, what I want to highlight is this lesson of suffering. And Jesus just makes it clear, it is necessary when you fall after me to suffer. And Anthony has uh, spent the last uh, five sessions um, talking about suffering. So I won't spend too much time on this. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to highlight the fact that Jesus says that suffering is a necessary part of following after Jesus. And the emphasis is not so much on the suffering. The emphasis is on what it means to live life, what it means to experience glory, what it means to really follow after God and experience the benefits. And you cannot just have benefits. There are costs and sacrifices as well in everything that you do. Uh, if somebody wants to win a championship, well, you have to go train like a champion sh champion in the gym. And that's not going to be fun in games. I don't know anybody who is like super happy and, you know, whistling and singing as they go to the gym to pump iron and break their body down, basically. <laughs> and that's just in um, the benefit of having a healthy body. There is suffering and sacrifice to prepare for the healthy body. Um, yeah. Everybody wants to win the victory of righteousness and have righteousness, but how many people want to suffer and fight sin? And there's just that necessary part of suffering that takes place. And so uh, basically, in this idea of suffering, Jesus is saying uh, the very thing that we don't want to experience is the very thing that we need to experience what we really want to experience. So God's lesson, uh, God... Uh, 
that sentence didn't make sense. I think I typed this too late at night. Anyway, so basically suffering is an important element of experiencing glory. And so um, when Jesus is teaching the disciples about the second phase of healing, um, he's not presenting this Christless cross or a crossless Christ, um, but he's trying to get us to experience the resurrected Christ in all his glory power, might, and character so that his disciples can truly see and truly grow. Now, um, I love mountain biking. And uh, basically, having clear vision is very important to me when I'm mountain biking. Um, Basically, clear vision gives way uh, for clear direction. Uh, Clear vision tells me where I should and where I shouldn't ride. It minimizes the danger, i.e. trees and boulders and cliffs sometimes, um, and it maximizes enjoyment. And so uh, it's my prayer that as you guys um, follow after Christ and learn about who Christ is and learn about the very nature in which he operates and the principles by which he operates, um, I know that God promises clear vision and sight um, in the direction that you're going in your life. So may God bless you. This time, um, my beautiful wife and I are going to uh, share a song of reflection. It's called Jesus Messiah. Thank you. By the way, if you're wondering where our little son is, he's sick, so he's home with Grandpa. I made the mistake of taking him to my morning church because uh, Roy was preaching there this morning and I thought it was our one chance to all go together as a family um, to the same church in the morning. So then we kind of forced him to go with us even though he wasn't feeling well and that just made it a lot worse. <laughs> so um, hopefully he's sleeping at home now. But. So yeah, this this song is about uh, Jesus um, as a Messiah and it's, yeah, it kind of talks about uh, who Jesus is and um, yeah, what he came here to do. And so as you reflect upon the words, um, yeah, I hope it blesses your heart as it has blessed mine.
Father God, as we think about who you are and as we think about how you operate, may we give our lives in submission, in obedience, in trustful faithfulness to who you are. And as a result, may we have clear sight, clear vision. And um, Father, we just want to ask that in our journey that uh, you would make your um, presence known in our lives, that it would give us that security. And uh, may we really look to you. And move forward even when it's tough and we have to deny ourselves, pick up our crosses and follow you. So Father, as we go into the time of discussion, please bless our uh, time of sharing and may we really learn from each other. We pray in your name. Amen.